which is more effective in improving team performance? Using positive feedback to let people know when they're doing well, or offering constructive comments to help them when they're off track? Thus begins an article from the Harvard Business Review about improving corporate performance. It goes on. New research suggests that this is a trick question. The answer, as one might expect, is that both are important. But the real question is, in what proportion? The research examined the effectiveness of 60 leadership teams at a large information processing company. The factor that made the greatest difference between the most and least successful teams was the ratio of positive comments to negative comments that participants made to one another. The average ratio for the highest performing teams was 5.6. That is nearly six positive comments for every negative one. Medium performance teams averaged 1.9. So almost twice as many positive comments than negative ones. And low performing teams averaged 0.36. So almost three negative comments for every positive one. End quote. In the first of seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus. And in the span of seven verses, he gives eight positive comments and only one negative one. Now, the problem with this article's ratios is that while some negative comments can be compensated by 5.6 positive ones, others are so weighty in rebuke, so jarring in force, that it requires more than just six positives to make up the difference. I'm sure you've had conversations at work, with friends, with family, which began with a series of compliments to be followed by the heart-sinking, but. You're, you're doing a great job. Stellar work on last week's report. Thanks for calling that meeting, but. You know I love you. You do so much around here. And I hope you know I so appreciate it, but. I see the work that you're doing. You're faithfully enduring for my name's sake. You're resisting evildoers, testing those in leadership. You're hardworking, tireless in service, but. Friends, this morning we're going to focus especially on what comes after the but. On the critical comment the Son of Man gives to the prominent church in ancient Ephesus. Now like I said before, this begins a whole series of letters, seven in total, which make up this next section in the book of Revelation, so chapters 2 and 3. And so in just a moment I'll introduce you to the genre 
of this section and how we're to think of these letters in context. And then we'll read Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, and walk through it verse by verse. While this passage was originally addressed to the first century church of Ephesus, I want to read it this morning as though it's addressed to us. Because in part, it is. So, lots to do and little time to do it, uh, but before we go any further, let us pray. Lord, thank you for speaking to your church. Not leaving us in the dark, speaking through your spirit to edify, encourage, but also to rebuke at times. Lord, give us ears to hear, and hearts to appreciate and internalize what you are saying to us this morning. Make us more like you, please, Jesus. It's in your heavenly name that we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 2. And as you turn there, let me just summarize what we've studied thus far. Um, The first three verses of chapter 1 make up the prologue to the book of Revelation. And in this passage, we learn that God has given a disclosure and uncovering of heavenly reality to Jesus, who has given it through an angel to this man, John. And John has been commanded to send a written account of this disclosure to seven actual communities in Asia Minor. Well, the book of Revelation is then framed as a letter of sorts in verses 4 through 8, and we get a number of titles here to describe the Son of Man, Jesus, whom the Revelation is all about. And then in verses 9 through 20, we get this vision of a heavenly space in which there are seven lampstands arranged as a ring, and the Son of Man is standing in the middle And in the Son of Man's hand are seven stars, which represent figures associated with the seven churches, either angels or pastors. John is commanded to write down what he sees, and we learn that this entire revelation, at least the account of it that we have, is meant to encourage the hearts of believers as they endure persecution in first century Asia Minor. Now, after chapter 1, if you were to jump to chapter 4, the vision is continued quite seamlessly. And we enter a heavenly throne room, and we see all sorts of things similar to what we saw in chapter 1. But in between chapters 1 and 4, we have this other section, chapters 2 and 3, which comprise seven letters to seven churches. Now, as you'll see, these letters are formulaic and abide by certain literary rules and conventions, and they differ from the material in the rest of the book. And so many people think that John actually wrote these letters last. It's like writing your introduction after writing the whole paper. That he wrote an account of the visions he experienced, and then he wrote these letters describing the specific situations of each church, but to be read by all the churches, and that he intentionally put it where he did 
in the document. Now, some even think that what is said propositionally in the letters is represented symbolically in the visions to follow in Revelation 4 through 19. What I need you all to know is that these letters never existed independently. They were always, always part of the book of Revelation. And so you see in these letters themes that connect back to chapter 1, especially those titles describing the Son of Man as well as John's vision, and themes which forecast aspects of the visions to come throughout the rest of the book. So it's reaching backward and forward. So we're going to be looking at these letters for the next seven weeks. Spoiler alert, one week for each letter. And I want you to remember that this entire document that is Revelation was originally read aloud to each of these seven communities and was meant for their present and immediate edification and spiritual growth. So, Let us read Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 7 in the ESV. So as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You may be seated. Well, what I'd like to do now, friends, is simply walk through this section verse by verse understanding it in its original context and as it stands in the document that we have in front of us, but also reading it as a word of encouragement and exhortation to us even today. Now verse 1 features language that you'll see in the opening lines of each of the seven letters. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? Etc., etc. Now, last week I explained to you that this word angelos 
translated angel, doesn't have to mean a spiritual being, a kind of guardian angel or angel associated with the welfare of this community. It can also mean a human messenger or representative. And so this could mean to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? To the one responsible for the spiritual welfare, the spiritual health of the community, right this. And the first words that he's commanded to write are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now last week we saw this image, this vision of the Son of Man, this figure from Daniel and Ezekiel and elsewhere in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ in his divine glory in heaven. And he was holding seven stars in his right hand. And the stars are said to be the seven angels of the churches. So like I said, either spiritual beings or the pastors connected to these communities. The seven golden lampstands are arranged as a ring in the middle of which is the Son of Man. And they are said to represent the seven churches. So verse 1 connects this opening letter, and I would say this whole section of letters, to what we just read in chapter 1. It shows us that the words of these letters are not John's words that he came up with, human words, but rather they are God's words. The very words of the Son of Man, who is one with the Ancient of Days, who walks, it says, among the seven golden lampstands. The present tense here of the verb walk suggests that in the daily life of these churches, the Son of Man is currently walking among them. That He's in their midst that he's aware of what they're going through, that he's watching to see if they would fall. This is a sobering truth for us to remember today. The Son of Man still, in the present tense, walks among the seven golden lampstands. Which means that he walks among us. You can be comforted by that, but you can also be terrified by it. The way that we live thus matters. And our function, remember, is to shine the light of Christ as a lampstand to illuminate His glory for all the world to see. Let's look at verse 2. After that opening in verse 1, we get this phrase, I know which is actually quite common in the letters. You'll see it recurring. We see that the Son of Man knows intimately the strengths and weaknesses of these seven churches. And he starts here with some positive comments. Clearly he's read the Harvard Business Review. He says, I know your works. And don't think of this as legalism, as trying to accrue good works to gain salvation. It's not that. Simply, the actions that have emerged from their faith, the fruit of faith. I know your works. Your toil, 
your patient endurance. Endurance, that's the same word we saw before. Christians share in common the tribulation, the kingdom, the endurance. I know your endurance and that you're not able to tolerate evil, but instead you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So first we see that in Ephesus there were some claiming to be apostles, and not claiming to be among the twelve disciples, but simply those who are sent officially to plant churches and teach with authority. So some had come into their midst and tried to teach, it seems, things that are not perfectly orthodox or healthy. And the Ephesian believers exercised discernment and detected false teaching among these apostles. And so they're praised for this. And this is described as patient endurance as they continue to remain faithful to the truth. He goes on in verse 3, I know. Again, the same word from verse 2. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Now, it's interesting that the language from before is that you do not bear with evildoers. And here they are bearing up for my name's sake. Same Greek word. The idea is that they are tolerating difficulty, enduring trial on account of the name of Jesus. And the Son of Man says, you have not grown weary. So looking at these positive comments, the church at Ephesus was hardworking in that they tirelessly safeguarded the truth, exercising keen discernment, resisting those who tried to spread false teaching. They were enduring with patience, longing for the kingdom of God to be made real and full. And they're bearing whatever comes as a result of publicly confessing Christ in this hostile environment, and they have not grown weary. All very positive things. In verse 4, then, we get this fateful word, but. But. I have this against you. Now imagine hearing those words from the Son of Man, whose face is shining like the sun, whose eyes are like flames of fire, voice like the sound of rushing waters. Those initial positive comments probably felt so good. For the Ancient of Days, the Son of God, somehow united to praise you for your works your toil, your endurance. Imagine, though, what it felt like to hear, but. But I have this against you. And friends, it's just one thing. It's one negative comment compared to what I counted as eight in the rest of the passage. But it's a big one. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. 
the love which possessed you at the very beginning. When you as a church were born as a church. The brotherly love and affection for each other that characterized this community is gone. Friends, the Ephesian church was one of the earliest of the seven churches to have been established. And there's much written in the New Testament about this church. And it seems that they had progressively grown to safeguard orthodoxy and truth, to protect sound doctrine, to to carry out Paul's commands, as we see in his letters. But the love, and I truly believe this is not love of God or love of Christ, but love of one another, the love that issues from a pure heart, the the brotherly love that the world sees and is attracted to, the love that Christ himself exhibits toward us and toward all creation, that love, that affection, that concern for one another's welfare, that tenderness, that charity is gone. It's gone. They had become so concerned with safeguarding orthodoxy, protecting against heresy, that they were no longer a community of love. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That initial period of love and tenderness is portrayed as a a mountaintop or a tower, a pinnacle of Christ-like experience. And in idolizing the truth at the expense of love, they had fallen from the tower. Remember from where you have fallen. Change your mind. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Now, it seems very likely that in view here is brotherly love, especially because of this phrase, the works you did at first. Now, the Christian community in Ephesus was characterized initially by mercy toward one another, giving to provide for one's physical, financial needs, healing the sick, clothing the naked, setting the captive free, works that were visible and that showed this palpable source of love in their heart. And so the remedy, the prescription that the Son of Man gives for them to recover the love that they had lost is to start doing the works which issued from sincere love at the very beginning. So the idea is carry out these practices and the feelings will follow. And friends, that's what we are as a church. We're a school of love. We're a place in which to carry out these kinds of practices toward one another so we can grow in our affection toward each other. It seems, though, that when the church at Ephesus knew less doctrine, when they were younger, in their infancy even, they were full of love, which over time they lost. He goes on to say in verse 5, if you do not do this, if you do not 
start doing the works you did at first, if you do not recover the love which you lost, I will come to you. And it's not the sort of coming that you want. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, the church at Ephesus will not be able to function as a church. A church that doesn't have love is unable to shine the light of Christ in the world. It's unable to fulfill its God-given purpose, which is to illuminate the glory of Jesus. And so it ceases to be a church and it becomes something else. Verse 6. But this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And friends, we really don't know much about the Nicolaitans. Uh, The only other place that we read about them in early Christian literature is Revelation 2, verse 15. And that verse associates the Nicolaitans with eating food that had been offered to Greco-Roman deities, gods. And that's something Paul even explores and talks about in 1 Corinthians. It seems that there was a group of Christians in Ephesus, and likely in other towns too, that were very comfortable accommodating the practices of Greco-Roman culture into their faith. Now Paul is comfortable doing that to an extent because he says the gods to which you make sacrifices aren't real. But the Nicolaitans, it seems, went a bit too far in blending the culture with Christianity. And so the Son of Man says, yet this you have. However, in their attempt to safeguard orthodoxy, to separate themselves from such blending, such others, They had left the love that made them a life-giving, illuminating community in the first place. Well, finally, in verse 7, we get this formulaic line which recurs in all seven of the letters. And it seems to relate to prophetic statements in the Old Testament, but also sayings in the Gospels. It says, let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now the Spirit is that which inspires prophecy. The Spirit is what speaks the Word of God. And so the words of the Son of Man here are said to be the words of the Spirit of God. They are inspired and inspiring. And this relates to the parables You can think of the Gospels, but language in Isaiah, where there were some who were too hardened, it says, to hear God's Word. So to the one who has ears to hear, the one who has softened to such words, listen, repent, change. And to the one who conquers, it says, and conquering here is taken either from a military athletic, or a virtuistic context, but seems to refer to those who conquer by obeying Christ's commands 
who endure with faith and are aligned with Jesus till the end. The one who conquers would then be the one who recovers the love they had at first. To the one who conquers, I will give to him to eat of the tree of life. You think of Genesis in the beginning. The tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, to the one who conquers, I will give salvation. But this I have against you. You abandoned the love you had at first. The Ephesian church had grown so competent in their ability to detect heresy, to maintain orthodoxy, that they had forgotten how to love. This is no small matter. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 writes, If I speak in the tongues of humans and angels, if I have prophetic power, if I have faith to move mountains, if I give away all that I have but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. And Eugene Peterson, in his lovely little book on Revelation, writes, The church is not the church if it has not love. A church which has truth but not love is not actually the church. It's not functioning as a lampstand which illuminates the glory of Jesus Christ. But it has moved from its position becoming something else, something different. And friends, I can stand before you today and confidently, assuredly say, you do not deserve this rebuke. Not now. You have shown yourselves time and again to be a community that is bursting, bursting with love. I don't want you to hear this as a rebuke of you right now. I'm just here to preach the word. But friends, do not think for a moment that you are unsusceptible to such a fall. A fall from prizing truth and love to keeping one without the other. We can learn from where we sit today. We can learn from the Ephesians predicament and the instructions that Jesus gives. He says, remember from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. Do the works of love. Keep doing the works of love. And the feelings will follow, I promise. Act charitably, sensitively, generously toward one another. Keep doing that. Exercise patience, kindness, good-heartedness toward one another. Keep doing it. Think, life is too short. 
too sacred for me to harbor resentment toward you. Stand for truth, yes, but stand with love, or else your standing will be in vain. Friends, Christ appears to us today giving us divine encouragement. Eight positive comments, but also rebuke. For us, this rebuke might be preventative, not corrective, but we still ought to take it seriously. Through prizing the truth and modeling selfless love, the church fulfills its God-given function, which is to shine as a lampstand for Jesus Christ. This morning, let's in Receive the encouragement of Jesus whenever he chooses to give it. But let's also heed his rebuke before our need of it becomes desperate. Let me close with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who loves I'll grant nothing less than eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for standing in the middle of these churches, standing in our midst today, speaking words that are soothing, that are honey to our souls, but also words that sting, words that jolt. Lord, help us to live with a sense of urgency that You are coming. You're coming soon. Help us to take seriously our divine calling, which is to shed light on Your glorious face. And to do that, Lord, we need to hold fast to the truth that you've entrusted to your servants, but to also embody your selfless love. Help us to do both. Help us to depend on you whenever we feel like we are slipping. Thank you, Jesus. Keep our eyes focused on you and be glorified through our worship of you today. Amen.